Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my two brothers, Christian Lewis and Jeremy Sartori. And today we are revisiting a moment in time in the hip-hop world, uh, the Native Tongues movement that was, I don't know, what's the, what's the date stamp here? Like 80, 88 to 90, mid-90s? Yeah, I think the influence reaches far beyond that, but... Uh, when people refer to the collective of native tongues, I would say, yeah, late 80s and kind of mid to semi-late 90s. It was your high school career, Jer, or your middle school and high school, going into high school career, my most, pretty much solidly my college uh, years. And uh, so you and I were very, very into this in real time. Christian, how did this stuff trickle down uh, to you, did you uh, hear? I think it started. So, I mean, as you guys remember, I had a pretty early ear for rap. Um, I think I was just incredibly drawn. I mean, as as I always have been to the sort of percussion to the rhythm section of um, uh, of the music that I listened to, and that's sort of that's sort of the foundation of, of like how I how I listen to things. So it was it was sort of a no brainer that I would get into rap um, pretty early, I think. And from there, uh, you know, it was it was really it was chipping away at the surface of what I was listening to on the radio and the biggest artists of that particular time in the early 2000s. Um, and then it was, it felt like, um, you know, a, a lot of discoveries happened at once, right? It was, it was a tribe called Quest where, you know, I realized that a lot of the sort of funk, soul, and jazz that I'd heard growing up was um, actually incorporated in this really cool way into um, into new hip-hop or, uh, you know, another, uh, not a Native Tongues band, but another band that, that um, and, you know, that sort of got me digging in that particular uh, crate in that particular corner of the record store was like uh, Jurassic 5. Mm. Um, so it was sort of, it was sort of reverse engineered, I guess, out of, out of the present day, uh, uh, present day hits. Yeah. Who are the sort of cultural forebears for this? I, you know, to me, um, you know, obviously Run DMC was so uh, gigantic in the mid-'80s when these guys uh, basically formed, and I think everybody, every kid wanted to be Run DMC at that point. But I, I also think like a, someone like Slick Rick, um, you know, who's a consummate storyteller, uh, you know, would be a huge influence to these guys. Jared, do you know, like, what the, who their influences were necessarily? Well, I mean, I think with, you know, Jungle Brothers and Daylaw, definitely African Mabata had a huge part of that, um, you know, both connecting them and then just the influence that he had, as well as the New York DJ, DJ Red Alert, too, was a big champion. But I think, like, just to go back in time a little bit, um, in the late 80s, when hip hop was kind of becoming an actual, you know, entity, so like MTV was had Yo! MTV Raps and you could find sort of hip-hop stations. We were living in New Jersey at the time. <clears throat> there was a lot of experimentation. Like, there was a lot of just different um, sounds, you know, and, and different mm-hmm. different things going on. So, you know, you, you definitely had the influence of, like, funk and disco, um, some of the street music that was going on, you know, Beastie Boys even. And um, and it was kind of blended. And, and I do remember kind of watching UMTV raps, and I think when you'll remember this, it was this sort of, like, sub-genre, not really... Mm-hmm. recognized um, as, like, you know, a, a, a music form because there was no hip-hop videos being played during the regular hours with Fat Five Freddy and um, hosting back then. And I think you had kind of, you know, a little bit of a formula and 
I would say, you know, certainly the Jungle Brothers were kind of the first to kind of break that formula, and they went very African Mabata style, like Afrocentric mm-hmm. and po- you know positive. They even have on their first album, uh, House Jam, like house music was you know kind of uh, in there, kind of transported from Chicago. But then the Daylight album with Prince Paul flipped, I think, pretty much everything on its head, Three Feet High and Rising. I mean, that was, I remember seeing Potholes on My Lawn, and, um, you know, Dela was technically kind of a suburban Long Island group, you know, riding around on scooters with this weird black and white video in yodeling. Yeah, yeah it, it was, was it, like, what is this? It was kind of out of clear, clear blue sky, because the things that were kind of predominant at that point were kind of this kiddie rap, like, you know, safe, you know, mom kind of rap like DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince and Young right. MC stuff like that and then you had you know the sort of uh, Tone Loke you know it was it felt like it was yeah, absolutely the for the pop charts yeah and and then on top of that you had you know sort of I guess the burgeoning digital you know digital underground public enemy who you know were ferocious at that point and and then you get this sort of like hippy dippy uh, De La Soul record and everybody fell in love. I think, yeah, there's a there's an important point that you guys make about experimentation here. And, and really, you know, if you think about the, the dawn of rap as taking place in the sort of late 70s, um, and if you think similarly about the dawn of uh, rock and roll taking place in the, you know, mid to late 50s, um, the amount of progress that each of those genres made within 15 years was extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think a huge part of that is just like, um, you've, you've taken your parents' music, you've thrown it out, uh, you've, you know, you've absorbed the best parts, the parts that you love, the sort of motifs, the, the reference points, um, but at the end of the day, you are making something that's your own. And, um, you know, there are so many different, there are as many manifestations of that as there are, um, you know, socioeconomic strata, as there are uh, political views, as there are, um, you know, cliques of friends in a high school. Geographical. Uh, and so it, it makes perfect sense that, you know, well, interestingly, though, um, I would actually say that, like, you know, in, in neither of those cases were, was, was geography, like, massive. I mean, it wasn't that diverse, actually. It was like, it was, I mean, if you think about it in the greater scheme of things, it wasn't coming from every city in America. It was really, like, coming out of a couple of hubs. That's, what I mean. that um, my, that's my point. There was nothing yeah, in California. But the sub-geography. Yeah, yeah. yeah this, the sub-geography of, like, New York City became a hugely important um, yeah, Bronx, uh, a hugely important factor. Strong Island. Amityville. Yeah. yeah. The horror. Yeah. The horror. Um, I mean, so, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, it's. I, I think it's kind of. It makes a lot of sense to me that somebody like Africa Bambata and you know Queen Latifah, or um, like the Jungle Brothers, who you know were all transformative, um, you know, mega star, sort of not mega stars, but like uh, massive figures within this uh, within this world um, would, you know, simply by virtue of like keeping an open creative mind. And finding and and sort of allying with these other kids who were doing interesting new shit that was going in all these different directions, like they sort of anointed them in a way, you know. And it wasn't it wasn't like this sort of formal lockstep alliance necessarily. It was just it was uh, a loose aggregation. It was just, talent finds talent. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, yeah, but also the, the other thing that's interesting is because this was always sort of in the in the moment it was sort of referred to as as college rap, you know, sort of given that moniker. Almost all these guys were in high school when it started. Yeah. It's pretty crazy yeah, really how young, young they were. And I think uh, you know, you can't go without saying Prince Paul's unique 
production, on, especially on Three Feet High and Rising uh, and De La Soul's Dead, but really you have like the first kind of skits that I remember, mm-hmm. you know, um, that were really funny and really good and I think have been completely overplayed and ruined since. But um, that album was just wacky. I mean, it, it, it sampled it was uh, all Schoolhouse Rock, you know, as the yeah. opening track. Um, well, so let's let's do a quick yeah. I mean, let's take a minute to to dig into Three Feet High and Rising because like thinking about the timeline here, it was like so it, it really teed off the the year I was born. Actually, um, was the first uh, first sort of collaboration with Black Is Black by by Jungle Brothers, which had Q Tip on it, and then Jungle Brothers made another tune, the promo, which also featured Q Tip, um, and then in 1989, uh, Buddy came out uh, and. Three feet high and rising dropped. Now, obviously, this is a this is a you know this is a moment worth taking you know worth stopping and sort of thinking about. Like that track listing is incredible. Yeah, I and I believe me. I think you know when I when I think back to albums and I haven't owned this album physically in a really long time, and you can't stream it uh, for reasons we'll get to later. But like I know every single second every note if there was a note that was changed on that album right now i could identify it immediately it's it's so burned into my skull i listened to it so much i know jared did too um Mm. and it was just funny we were like why you know how is this guy how are these guys sampling schoolhouse rock hollow notes um you know steely dan johnny cash Cash. Cash, (laughs) it's insane (laughs) It was fucking bananas. Like who the hell do you think? Yeah, well, who do you guys think you are? Is sort of. Well, the, and it was the, pre the question, kind right? of that, you know, which later became a staple of kind of rapping over a hit track, you know, um, in let's say the late '90s. This was, I think, and still is, just a, a extremely creative use of that. And, and to your point of like the the genre kind of, um, you know, hitting the future button, it really came from you know people samplers and and crate digging you know you know Dela I think has gone on record as saying like you know they grabbed a bunch of these old records from their parents you know their parents listened to like a wide variety of music and apparently and so someone's mom them. was trying to learn French yeah they liked well, Hall and Oates and they liked uh, you know uh, African Bobo the Commodores and, <laughs> exactly. and you know all sorts of Ohio players it's sort of a mixed bag of like radio friendly stuff and sort of 70s funk um, you know, there are there are parliament nods, but this was before parliament kind of dominated, um, you know, the sampling world. And, and but, the you know, there's just so many weird things. Unfortunately, uh, the turtles were sampled, uh, which we'll get to. But uh, it, it was just a melange of weirdness. Uh, well, the th- three guys, I mean, the three groups, too. And, and if you think about, if, you know, we can probably just technically agree yes there, there's other kind of members but jungle brothers day law tribe called quest are, are traditionally kind of the the founders, holy trinity guess, of native tongues yeah and people's instinctive paths and travels um the first tribe album i mean the first single left my wallet in el segundo you know <laughs> jungle brothers straight out of the jungle all three of those albums just sonically and um lyrically were very different than anything that was going on at the time and i think too one thing that i, I always thought was kind of cool about these guys is and I know for when you were in college so it was definitely a day law especially um three feet nine rising was completely just critics were in love with that album but I also like you know all three of these albums were very much um a huge part of like the black community too I mean they were Mm -hmm. they they all had singles that were really popular in clubs and and uh on radio and um you know it was on on you know black hip-hop radio and things like that so it was uh I don't know, it was just kind of a unique blend. They, they weren't coming, it wasn't a bunch of, 
college kids making, you know, funky music. It was a bunch of guys that, you know, didn't really know what they were doing or, but, you know, did to a certain degree coming up with a new form of hip-hop, really. As they said in the Wu-Tang, you know, documentary, you know, they were worried that their... Somebody was worried that their... I think Ghostface was worried that their uh, audiences were getting too white, and they were like, well... White audience, black audience makes, you know, platinum. Black audience makes gold records. White audience and black audience makes platinum. And it's it's true. Like, this was, uh, you know, this was a, a moment where the, the, the lines were kind of erased a bit. I mean, people liked the Beastie Boys genuinely, and people liked these guys really a lot. Right, you didn't have to feel like um, a sort of... Uh, a cultural tourist necessarily in order to appreciate this. It just sort of felt like it was for everybody. Um, and it definitely had, uh, it, it had, you know, um, clear uh, sort of like musical roots um, in, you know, in black music, but it was, it was accessible. And I mean, to be blunt, I think non-threatening, which was probably um, an important quality at a time when, uh, you know, uh, when the previous iterations and people like Public Enemy were were deliberately so, um, and I think Robert Crisco hit the nail on the head, uh, the, the famous Village Voice rock critic, when he said that this was um, new wave uh, to Public Enemy's punk, um, and you know it was it was a sort of softening element. They were talking about being nerds in high school. They were talking about being like dorky kids and doing funny stuff, and it was things that were relatable to dorks like Jeremy. <laughs> That's right. No, it was, I mean, it was, it was fun music, too, and I mean, I think these guys, there was always sort of the posturing and, and stuff that you always see in hip-hop, but um, there was a big emphasis on positivity, which was new and, and kind of unique, and then they, you know, they, they reverberated, um, you know, off of these, these uh, albums. And the legacy, yeah. I mean... And even, even if DJ Jazzy Jeff and Will Smith or whatever were, were um, you know, were, were positive, they also suck. So the, the important <laughs> distinction to be made here is that, they, that these guys are also just consummate, like, musical, like, talents. And, and you know, they're, they're yeah, just the stuff... I mean, the, the production is fucking crazy, actually. Well, this is, I mean, think about. you know, people refer to this these years as the golden era of hip-hop, and... Um, I, I would definitely it, it, you have to include all three of their debut albums in that in that realm. I mean, they completely. 100%. I think, and I and I think like we said earlier too. I mean, let's should we listen to a, a track maybe by the JBs Jungle Brothers and yeah. then come back yeah, and talk about uh, what happened to Three Feet High and Rising in the next sure. generations. And we almost fought Fight. But since he was a brother I thought that would be wrong So I let him go I let him run along Run along I write rhymes like I come from New York City My DJ spin the music down to the nitty gritty Running downstairs records five days a week Searching and seeking for the baby bear beat The African rap that comes from within us Brothers heard about it now They wish they could have been us We did an album with no problem Now we're working on another with another jungle brother Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking about Native Tongues, a small collective uh, from New York that included, among others, the Jungle Brothers, Tribe Called Quest, and De La Soul. Um, 
we were going to talk about the sort of not not just the sort of landmark nature of their debut albums, which was you know really shook um, the fundamentals in the hip hop community in a good way, but also the the sort of seismic reverberation around Three Feet High and Rising um, that was less positive. Um, and Jerry, I think you know a little bit about this, um, and I can help fill in the blanks if you don't. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, well. You know, Three Feet Nine Rising, as we mentioned, and actually there's an excellent uh, Sound Opinions pod on this album, which kind of triggered some of the conversation around it since you can't listen to it um, on any services or buy it these days. And, and I mean, basically, it was kind of the one of the first and last, um, you know, sample-heavy records due to a lawsuit that tied them up and has, has continued to tie De La Soul up. And one of the things that, you know, whether they were we were speaking about their age prior, but they were young and, and naive and, and apparently, and this is things that I am not 100% aware of, not being a, a recording artist, your record company is supposed to clear all of the samples and had neglected to clear, um, you know, some of the samples that Prince Paul had, had done, uh, primarily a, like, one chord from a Turtles track on one of the uh, the skits, and they were sued, and... Um, Tommy Boy has fought De La Soul to pay off all of the royalties, and De La has refused, basically. So you ended up with a, you know, probably one of the, I think, initially the shining star out of the three. So I, mean, I think the Jungle Brothers were kind of the elder statesmen um, there first and brought De La and Tribe along with Avril Nevada. Uh, Tribe, to me, took like the sophomore surge and, you know, with low end theory and, and really, I, I think, had the most one of the most kind of impactful hip-hop careers and, and um, album collections out of the groups. But De La at the time was the group that everybody was wowed by. And uh, it really stopped them dead in their tracks, so much so that their next album was titled De La Soul is Dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took a much darker turn. Yeah. It, it was palpable uh, how resigned they were. I mean, it almost, you know, it almost ended their career. Um, but it is a, it is a, absolute shame that this record is is uh um you know uh, inaccessible because it is so great and even the little snippets you hear from time to time however they are bootlegged into your earbuds um are just such a reminder of what you're missing out on um it was one of those albums too i you know i used to make a lot of mixes as you did back in those days on cassettes and it was one of those ones where you could never decide which song to put on because they all seemed weird out of context the full album was the listening experience none of the individual songs Definitely, in a really single-driven genre, yeah. I think all of these guys were able to make um, full albums. And on top of that, you know, by adding just a, a whole new wave of jazz and, and funk and musicality and, and odd samples to things, they also, we were talking kind of off-air about the comparison to Elephant Six, another collective that we did a pod on. And initially, I think I was a little hesitant because I felt like this was a looser collaborative. But but you guys kind of um, convinced me that you're you're probably pretty you're pretty right on with that comparison. Um, so there's a, a slew of, of folks that came out of this world and were influenced. Um, and you know, I, first wave being you know some of my favorite groups from that era: Black Sheep, Brand Nubian, Leaders of the New School, where Buster Rhymes came out of. Um, Queen Latifah was there from the beginning, but you know, kind of caught wind a little post these albums so i mean who else did you guys kind of uh catch on to that were sort of affiliated or loosely affiliated with the native tongues movement 
Yeah, I think I think it's worth noting. I mean, that that you know, as you say, like it's it's a little bit difficult to track down or to identify the taxonomy. I mean, what really unites them is like the really heavy emphasis on soulful, like uh, kind of funky music um, that is. It's just identifiable to me. I, I, I really, I, I, before I knew the history of these groups, I, I honestly, I just sort of grouped it together as like, oh yeah, that's like musical rap. Um, and, you know, it is musical. And that, that is something that sort of like holds a lot of these groups together. And of course it, it you know, would include other groups that are, that, you know, like J5, as I mentioned, who um, oh, definitely, yeah. uh, who actually were not part of this group. But, but you know, there is something that, that holds, there's a sort of central conceit there. Um, but I think, you know, just to discuss the, uh, the coaching tree, for lack of a better term, um, you know, you have a pretty incredible like pedigree here that that actually continues to this day in artists like Kanye West, right? Because you've got um, you've got the well, so Tribe uh, pulled in leaders of the New School and um, Busta for uh, what's my scenario. Um, he then, by 1996 or seven, had put out an album, Extinction Level Event, right, and and had sort of embarked on a solo career before he got very oddly um, juiced up uh, l- later in his career. But um, in any event, in uh, more ways than you know, one, Buster, I think he I think he had a pretty nasty alcohol issue too. Nasty oh, right. habit. Um, <laughs> but uh, but no, he and he is he's. Um, I mean, if you think about the the sort of the quality of some of the MCs alone, like you've got Fife Dog, Q Tip. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I honestly think Q-Tip is probably the best, goes down to the top five MCs, the, MCs ever. Certainly know? he has one of the most lovable voices. Um, and he's just a clever like, as, guy. Yeah, I mean, Rick Kim has got to be in that mix. We can, we can oh, debate. Yeah. This, this, this is, this is another, It'll be a different podcast uh, altogether. Uh, th- yeah, it might be an entire March Madness Hell yes. bracket. Um, uh, <laughs> but um, I think... Uh, I think, you know, the, the cool part is you, you then see, so an artist like co- originally known as Common Sense, but, but Common, um, you know, connects uh, in, what, 1992 uh, with... Resurrection. Yeah, with Resurrection. Um, he is performing and, and um, uh, like... You know, playing just playing clubs and, and gigging a ton with um, with different uh, different members. Of yeah, this first group. time I ever saw Common, I didn't know who he was, and he was he would come yeah. out during the De La Soul set and, and do rhymes with them and play some of his tracks. It was great. So Pete Rock was producing some of his stuff. Um, he was uh, uh, he was performing with Lauren Hill, De La, Q Tip, you know, Cannabis. Um, wow, that's a blast. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and then ultimately his, his producer and like his really close friend was a guy named No ID. No ID, of course, was the mentor for Kanye West, um, which, you know, closes that loop pretty quickly. Um, and, and for one of the best, uh, best performances, in my opinion, that you're, you're going to find, um, actually was on the Dave Chappelle show, um, the, the, the food, which was a, which was an early Kanye song that, that features, um, uh, was it a common song that featured Kanye, or was it? I think it yeah, was think common it was. that featured um, Kanye. I think it was on. Yeah, I think it was common, and I think it was from the album B that came out in like two thousand three. Um, but in addition to uh, common, of course, you have Most Def, um, who starts out with 
raucous and um, is uh, in urban thermodynamics. Um, back in 1994-95, he's performing with De La and the Bush Babies. Um, and then, of course, he forms Black Star, which is Please. this fucking killer. Um, yeah, I mean, they are, they are ferocious, and they are two of the, like, two of the most dynamic lyrically dynamic MCs um, to share a stage uh, that, that I can think of. Yeah, um, one of the, probably the best hip-hop records. Talib Quilly, sorry. Yeah. I don't even think I got the end of that. I just, I was like off in my own world thinking about some of their, their greatest albums. One, so. one thing I think is interesting was that, you know, this was sort of, uh, you know, a hard left um, turn happened immediately after this. Um, you know, when NWA became such a massive phenomenon, um, everybody sort of had, you know, everybody sort of rethought, um, you know, their sort of their credibility based on how hard uh, sounding they were. And so everything like, I mean, I swear to God, Christian, if you, you should have been there, but I mean, everybody down to like fucking MC hammer was putting out some badass like gangster <laughs> track. And, um, you know, it was pretty funny. These guys knew who they were. And, yeah. uh, but the funny thing is I, I just went back and listened to Wolf of Sheep's clothing by black sheep, uh, today. And, you know, it opens with that like badass gangster track. And then, yeah. you know, it, yeah. There's a little, there's a little interruption, and then he's like, "Oh, wait a second. Sorry, I was just dreaming that I was hard." Yeah. You know? <laughs> and then he goes into all the hippy dippy stuff. I mean, the, the, my favorite Black Sheep song is, uh, you know, the riff is sampled from a, a the first Jefferson Airplane album. Um, yeah. Simple yeah, Black Sheep. Exactly. Yeah, and I think. I mean, so that these guys, these guys knew who they were, and in that respect, they were the indie rock to a lot of uh, a lot of mainstream hip hop. But they didn't, you know. I don't think they lost sight of their identity. It did take, however, um, one more generation uh, to, to sort of survive and withstand that that sort of era of, like, 90s gangster rap, which, which sort of took over, before Kanye West was able to re-inject, like, um, you know, a degree of... of Playfulness. Like culture, yeah. sophist- sophistication and humor. Yeah. Like, like, Kanye is all of those things. He is... Oh, he, I mean, he's he, fucking he's insane now, but he is... by the sound... Too. He was. I mean, he, as I said, he was. He was the. Uh, he was the mentee of, of No ID, Commons producer. Mm-hmm. Like he, he was found and brought up through this system, and you know, and has a similar similar background. I, I think uh, you know he was a producer first. Like he, there's just a lot of One, a lot of really. I honestly think too. Yeah. You know, you mentioned J Five, and I know that's like a, a you know a huge group for definitely people yeah, far side. your age. Yeah, far side. The, the L.A. Side. scene that kind of popped up. Um, Blackalicious groups. I mean, the Roots, really, you know. The Roots weren't part of the Native Tongues, but I don't think any of those groups, I shouldn't say they wouldn't have existed, but they certainly, uh, I think they certainly, you know, uh, probably like, you know, we talk about indie rock bands here in the Velvet Underground for the first time and, and wanting to pick up a guitar. I think a lot of these guys were, were, were certainly heavily influenced by groups like Tribe and De La and yeah. the Brothers to, and it, to get it's out sort there of the, and do their the, thing. The Brothers, the Brothers. The first, the first shot getting fired... I mean, you know, is is three feet high and rising, let's say, but it really is. It's it's the idea, like, it's the belief that you you can do it, and that nobody's gonna like laugh you out of school if you show up and do something earnest and like, you know, that's just different from what everybody's buying and listening to right now. Um, so, you know, I think with that said, we should uh, we should take a take a quick break. Um, 
Should we throw on? Well, we can't throw on three feet high and rising. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> should we throw on? Throw we on a little, say uh, that before every break. Let's throw on a little three feet high and rising. Oops. Yeah, damn. Um, so uh, we'll throw on maybe a little tribe um, and uh, come back and talk about Wyndham's new favorite band. Like a tribe does Before this Did you really know What live was Comprehend to the track Force why Cause Getting mentions On the tip Of the vibe buzz Rock and roll To the beat Of the funk fuzz Wipe your feet Really good On the rhythm rug If you feel the urge To freak Do the jitterbug Come and spread your arms If you really need a hug Afrocentric living Is a big shrug A life filled with Welcome back to Brother, Brother, Brother. Today we are talking Native tongues um, And uh, you know I think we've We've really We've Sort of marked out the evolution of this uh, this really incredible um, collection of artists from the mid '80s through uh, to the mid '90s, and you know even on to um, sort of latter day and, and present day um, uh, sort of torchbearers of, of this movement in in artists like Kanye West, Most Def, um, Talib Kweli. Uh, and the like. Um, so now I think we, we wanted to turn because it was too big of um, a story in music, too, too, too big of a story in music this week, I think, um, to be ignored. Uh, Wyndham has uh, news. He has a new favorite. I do. Band. It's, uh, you know, what I was talking about in the last segment, I was talking about seismic shifts in the, uh, in the history of music. And uh, last night, I believe I witnessed one firsthand on uh, ABC television uh, at 12 o'clock. And that was uh, the live feed of uh, uh, Jimmy Kimmel live with the Hollywood Vampires, um, a rough-and-tumble group of youngsters that are trying to crack the the music industry patriarchy, uh, led by a young upstart named Alice Cooper, um, with um, with a with another uh, one of maybe maybe a high school friend of his Joe Perry the prodigy yeah yeah guitar, and uh, and then of course the um, the one and only Johnny Depp um, who I believe uh, writes checks to the other members with the same hand that he plays so, so the guitar with. <laughs> Or that he slapped you his, this as a seismic shift. Is this is this sort of a seismic shift of the bowels? Yeah, it was. It's so <laughs> insane. I just couldn't wrap my head around it, and I wanted to talk to you guys about it because it, you know, all joking aside, I, why would they give? I mean, a, it's network television, whatever. But I mean, why would they give time to what is essentially just a guy doing? Karaoke. Um, yeah, I would say it's network television, but Kimmel and all those shows have pretty good musicians on weekly and musicians yeah. that deserve a slot. The bookers are the bookers are pretty good on those shows. Yeah, I mean, and what, uh, I are, are relevant. I should even say like they might not even be my favorite, but at least they're fucking relevant. I mean, I, I got your text last night and was going to bed, but uh, you know, YouTubed it. But I kept morning, you up all night. Yeah, and uh, oh my god, like. 
They did a coach just to be just to paint a picture. They it was uh, so it's Alice Cooper, Joe Perry, uh, a couple of sidemen, and Johnny Depp playing lead guitar and 100% earnestly doing a cover of Heroes by David Bowie. Great song, great guitar. Um, but what I, I just don't get it. He's like dressed as Ian Astbury from the Cult. Um, he's <laughs> singing like you know with no uh, hint of irony. It's it's like. It is. It feels very much like the emperor's new clothes. It's like, why won't somebody just be like, you know, maybe you should just take, you know, maybe, maybe you should have a, a party off. at your house and play, you know, for your yeah. friends at the pool. But um, yeah, you wouldn't even have to pay for a bar or anything. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you know, the you know the, the origin of the name. I don't. I no. assumed it was because they're all older than Nosferatu. But go for it. <laughs> Um, so, and this may be apocryphal, I don't know, um, but as I am, I am doing live real-time research, um, it's, uh, it's named after a drinking club, um, started by Alice Cooper in the 70s to honor, uh, his, his dead friends, basically. Um, so, uh, it included Mickey Dolan's Elton John, John Lennon, with other rotating members such as Keith Moon and Harry Nilsson. The main mission of the original Hollywood Vampires was to drink until no one could stand up. Mission accomplished by that crew, but uh, the other the yes. other point of relevance here is that Alice Cooper, I believe, is celebrating forty five years of sobriety at this point. So he and he and Joe Perry. So this is now to honor their their friends who have fallen. Ah, gotcha. Got it. Um, yeah, it's which painfully bad music. Mm. Yeah, I really don't think that they would appreciate that shit at all. I, I tend, I mean, I, it's easy to hate and easy to make fun of, but um, I really cannot yes. stand Johnny Depp, and, and if, if we've anybody's been following his, uh, you know... Oh, because he's, he's never been in a good movie, never except, good movie. except, except uh, Donnie Brasco. That, I was reminded that that was... That was I fair. that a lukewarm, yeah. yeah. But, uh, and, uh, I mean, it's not great, it's, but it's a good movie. Yeah, exactly, it's... Well, compared to fucking Pirates of the Caribbean 6. Yeah, which the outfit has gone, you know, too far. But I, I think to Wynn's point, I mean, it just, it actually made me mad. I was like, why yeah, are too. these geezers on stage? And I mean, I know I'm not an Alice Cooper fan. None of us are. I respect his place in rock and roll history. That song was, I mean, literally a joke. You were like, whoa, like that, that had to, I mean, he looks like if Steve Carell put on a wig and was pretending to do a heavy metal parody and... I mean, it, or a grandma put on a wig, and uh, I like dark eyeliner, and the lyrics were just painful. He Johnny like Depp, he... I guarantee you, does not know how to play guitar chords <laughs> by the looks of his. Uh, you know, where he wears it well, but that's about it. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's an awesome accessory. Alice Cooper looked like he was wearing an adult diaper with a skull <laughs> on the front of it. I mean, and. Uh, you know, again, yeah, yeah. I like I like Alice well, Cooper. What is, the, what is more pers- what is more hardcore than taking an involuntary dump in a human skull? <laughs> yeah, that's probably yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good call. Um, I think I think the most hardcore is paying you know probably uh, you know twelve hundred dollars for the skull uh, skull diaper. Which that's the other great thing about the rock and roller, the aged rock and rollers. Like the outfits are just a lot of work. Yeah, it's like, a, <laughs> well, it's not like they make good decisions when they were young people. <laughs> no. Yeah, but I mean, you could fall back on your on your looks and 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 joke. You yeah, know, it, all of them, you know, had had but, a but I good think role. That, like I don't, I'm not sure why we expect anything other than like regression to the mean in terms of like a lifetime. I think of bad it was, decisions yeah, just a lifetime the, of bad decisions. Airtime. It's just the embarrassing now. Yeah. Like they're not even having fun. 
Well, the, like, yeah, wow. I, th- I, I don't. I think the fact that they think that, I bet that they yeah, are. It's just that I'm not having fun. It, it just reminds me of every over the hill rocker who who you know put out a classic album. You know, I mean, taking case in point, someone I love like Keith Richards, whose autobiography was fantastic, but he spends the last you know sixty pages talking about this uh, the reggae band that he put together near his mansion in Jamaica. And how they're just as good as anybody he ever played with on Exile. And it's just, yeah, you know, it's, it, it's just a distortion of, of uh, reality and taste that comes with, you know, thinking, running out of ideas, having too much money um, at your disposal, and the ability to take public what should be absolutely done in private um you know it, it's I mean, just it could just be a bunch of guys taking advantage of their alcoholic wife-beating friend johnny depp i think i think he is paying the bills for these guys but it, i mean this is the second time didn't they play the grammys as well or something like one of the big award shows yeah. it's just humiliating that they keep dragging their i think if, if we could somehow score free tickets i would love to see the crowd at a hollywood vampire show i, I i'll pay i mean yeah. they performed at the grammys uh, as a tribute to lemmy who God, died a second time yeah. after that. Yeah. Who would have, like, just called so, uh, them in the nuts? Cause of death. So since I, since I don't actually think I could inflict this horseshit on our listeners, particularly so soon after doing the worst song of all time. Open the video. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, here is The Ace of Spades by Motorhead. <laughs> podcast we're going to end this one the same way we end every podcast which is uh me asking the question to christian and christian folding like a like a house of cards when i ask him a piece of lawn (laughs) furniture uh from ikea um what are you listening to uh i have actually recently really enjoyed um i've just started alan kruger's uh book rockonomics which is um for for those who are uh maybe less um familiar with uh with Kruger he was um actually like a a, a very well-known um Princeton economist who worked in several presidential administrations um you know made some sort of revolutionary uh research findings regarding labor economics um in the 1990s also massive fucking music fan um and uh just actually published just came out um with a, a book that sort of dissects and explores really the the you know the the economics of an industry that frankly is not very above board so um i'm i'm really enjoying that and tragically unfortunately he uh he he passed away recently um and uh did he commit suicide in a rather yeah in a rather rock star fashion um but uh but this will be his his epitaph and um it's a it's a you know he was famous actually for writing extremely well for for uh, an economist it's sort of an engaging you know, funny way. So I would say, like, for fans of like music and for economics, if if anybody liked that book, this would be a cool uh, a cool read. It's called Rock. And I Honest. wish he'd lived long um, enough to uh, shop uh, workshop the title, but I would be interested. It sounds interesting. It sounds cool. Jerry, what are you listening to? Yeah, um, 
I am been listening to a bunch of Titus Andronicus because if uh, I can get Christian away from his economics homework tomorrow evening, we're going to see their record release party at uh, Rough Trade, and I'm pretty stoked about it. Hell um, yes! So I haven't seen them since their first record, and uh, somehow managed to miss it. So excited! Love what I've heard from the new stuff, but I've kind of gone back twenty five times. Yeah, I've kind of gone back and it's uh, gonna be listened to all the records through through kind of a big uh, playlist together, and, and have been rocking out to it. So. Excited for that. So good. Awesome. I've been trying to write and do expense reports, so I've been listening to the most appropriate soundtrack possible, which is Sun O's most recent album. Uh, and it is bigger than I am by a lot. Um, it just, it's subsuming and insane, and uh, it literally shakes my desk uh, when I listen to it on very low volumes. So uh, I f- thoroughly. Uh, I, I can only think of like the most inappropriate places that this could be played, like you know preschool, or <laughs> uh, you know like any place where impending doom just wouldn't be welcome. But uh, listen to it and love it. It's epic, epic, epic. Rehab clinics, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like <laughs> funeral homes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, anyway, so yeah, you want to no, add a, a add one. a song to the uh, four hundred and twenty thousand. 682. Hell yeah, I do. Uh, I'll go first. I'm So Green by Can. Nice. nice. Yeah, and nice. I was going to add De La. Oh, wait, can't do De La. Um, I'm going to go with uh, <laughs> Most Deaf and uh, Mrs. Fat Booty, or Miss Fat Booty. And I am yeah. in, in honor of <laughs> De La Soul. I am going to put on Three is the Magic Number by Bob Duro, the original Schoolhouse Rock version which is i listened to the other day is a great song good cool all right guys well this was fun i'll catch up with you next week talk to you all soon later i'm wyndham lewis on behalf of my brothers jeremy sartori and christian lewis thank you very much for listening to the brother 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 podcast many thanks also to our heroic producer damian kendall and to simon doom for our epic intro music Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.